Welcome back to a special Friday Dispatch podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to Mick Mulvaney. He was elected to Congress in 2010, became a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. Once Donald Trump was elected, he served as director of the OMB and then the acting chief of staff from 2019 to March 31st, 2020. From there, he became the special envoy to Northern Ireland until he resigned following the events of January 6th, saying, we didn't sign up for what you saw last night. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Let's dive right in. Mick Mulvaney, thank you for joining us. The Biden administration has rolled out a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. What advice would you give to Ron Klain, your successor, if they actually want to get this done? Well, they're going to get it done. I mean, they've figured out a way, um, and I think it's probably legal to do it with uh, a new uh, version of reconciliation. Um, So they'll be able to do it with 50 votes in the Senate. And notwithstanding the objections of folks like Joe Manchin, they'll find enough money for West Virginia to 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 get that vote uh, and they'll get it passed. So I, I don't think I need to give Ron any advice. He knows exactly what they are doing. Um, whether that's a good idea is, a, is, a, is, a, is an interesting discussion, but they're certainly going to get it done. Someone asked me the other day, they went down the list of all the things that were in the bill. And I, they asked me how much of these things will actually become law. And I'm like, I think probably most of them. When you're willing to uh, to run a government as if you have an overwhelming majority and a mandate when you only have a 50-50 split in the Senate, there's almost nothing you can't do. When it came to the American Recovery Act, Republicans didn't really message against it. They voted against it, but they didn't hit the airwaves. They didn't do what they did with Obamacare, really driving down the popularity of the legislation and the accomplishment itself. Do you instead there was a lot of Dr. Seuss talk and some culture war stuff that they focused on during that time. Uh, We're seeing, you know, Mitch McConnell and others come out and say that uh, they want to make the point that, you know, what was it that McCarthy said? Only six percent of the money is actually going to go to roads and bridges. This is a progressive checklist. But of course, McCarthy and McConnell don't always control the messaging of the Republican Party these days. Do you think the Republican Party will message against this legislation? Or do you think they're going to stick to other topics, be it the border or Seuss-esque wars uh, when it comes to the infrastructure bill? Yeah, spending is a real tough issue for my party um, because while most folks will pay at least lip service to some type of fiscal conservatism, many of them don't believe it. The rarest thing in Washington, D.C. the last 10 years, probably the last 30, has been a true fiscal conservative. I mean, you look back at the times when there were actually Democrats who were against running up the, um, the deficit back in the 80s and 90s. That, that, that's long gone. Um, and the truth of the matter is that uh, the first two years of the Trump administration, when the Republicans had the House and the Senate, um, we raised spending faster than the last couple of years of the Obama administration. So spending is one of those things that Republicans, uh, there's a reason that we, and I'm saying we because I'm in this party, we default to the social issues, to the Dr. Seuss issues, to the border issues and stuff, because it's something that we sort of can all agree on. Spending is something that this party is going to have to reconcile within itself because it is a house divided on spending right now. All right. More fun stuff, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me let me push back on that a little bit. I mean, I have a slightly different uh, recollection of the last 10, 15 years of history because it seems to me that if you go back to the 2010, 2011 time frame, when you come in with a, a bunch of people who are at least, you know, talking about restraining spending and talking about debt and deficits, you finally had, uh, through Paul Ryan and his efforts, um, in the inclusion of entitlement reform in actual Republican uh, draft budgets, budget proposals. And that was something that it seems to me was kind of a rare moment of political courage in, in Washington where you know, Republicans kind of grabbed on to, to these issues long regarded as the third rail of American politics and embraced entitlement reform. We know that entitlements are driving the debt more than anything else. And Republicans actually offered substantive policy solutions and 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 owned it. 
And then five years later, 2016 comes around and Donald Trump is running against entitlement reform, makes very clear in the debates um, that he didn't have any patience for the other candidates on that big stage who wanted to run on entitlement reform, ran against it. And then obviously your your um, challenges inside the administration in in pushing any kind of spending restraint are, are well known and well documented. Wasn't there a moment where Republicans actually did take this somewhat seriously? Or was that basically just Paul Ryan pushing his entitlement reform proposals and other Republicans in the House who didn't really believe it going along? Um. A lot of questions. So let me see if I can break it down. Uh, listen, I, I, I give Paul and our whole team credit for willing to raise those issues in 2011, 12, and 13. And one of the things that I think history has forgotten is that we actually um, did well in midterm elections following on those arguments. Um, we got sideways when we started losing our message on health care, but we did well when we were talking about entitlement reform. We, we figured out a way, I think, to explain it to people, and people had started to accept the fact that um, that entitlement reform was absolutely necessary. We did that when we were in the minority. And then we come into the majority and have a chance to actually do it. And we did not. When we were shooting with real bullets, we didn't. Yes, you're correct. Donald Trump was against um, uh, uh, any, any changes to uh, Social Security and Medicare. And my budget that I wrote, we wrote three of them, did not touch mainline Social Security or mainline Medicare. But we deal, We had more entitlement reform, I think it was in the budget of 2019, than any other budget ever offered before, because we went to the other types of entitlement programs, Social Security, uh, disability, for example, all the other pieces of Medicare. Medicare pays for um, tuition scholarships for doctors. That's not what people think of as Medicare, right? They had become these huge funds of uh, just pools of money that over the course of the last 30 years, politicians had turned to for their pet projects. So there was all of this waste in entitlement reform that we could have changed without touching old age retirement and social security and mainline Medicare. And the Republicans on the Hill were just as fast to throw that budget in the trash as the Democrats were. When we were firing with real bullets and had a chance to make a change, we did. It's hard to do. It's always easier to tell people yes. It's also hard for most folks to explain why you have to spend less. It's not easy to message. It's possible. Um, I'm still one of the most proud moments I have is the uh, the budget presentation in May of 2017, which I still offer as one of the best defenses of fiscal conservatism in the last five or 10 years. Um, and it was a team effort to figure out how to explain to people why it was compassionate to spend less. But it's hard to do. And you have to really, really believe it like we did at the Office of Management Budget. But no, listen, we had a chance um, to at least free spending. And what we ended up doing was spending more um, during the first two years of, of our control of our control of this administration than the Obama folks had done in the last two years of theirs. We were great in the minority on spending and not so good when we're in the majority. So so will Republicans uh, make a case now for limited government, for spending restraint that they haven't been making very consistently in the past? Or do they look to these other issues as sort of a dodge so they don't have to engage? And if I can add to that, why in the world should we believe them? Well, I go back to Sarah's point, which is what did they say about the $1.9 trillion stimulus package? You know, they talked about other stuff, right? They didn't go to the heart of the economics. Economics is hard. It's, and it's also hard, by the way, to talk to people about the, the, the risks of inflation when we haven't really had real inflation in this country for 30 years. So again, most folks don't remember it. I, I'm, I'm probably, I'm looking at Steve and he looks like he's older than I am, but he's probably not. <laughs> Sarah is certainly not older than I am, but I remember when you had to pay 14% on a mortgage. No one, very few people remember that these days. It's hard to do. So it's, it's always hard to be conservative. It's always much easier to be liberal than Democrat. It's a lot less taxing um, uh, intellectually. It's a lot more fun at parties. You get better coverage on the press. Um, it's hard to be conservative, but uh, hopefully we will, we will get back to the basics and, uh, and start talking about economic issues again. But truly, if Republicans all of a sudden, when the opposing party gets power, says now we're the party of fiscal restraint again, I find it offensive. How stupid do they think I am? They don't actually believe this. It's not an actual principle. It is a, 
politically convenient, politically expedient, which is its own justification. But make that justification then. Why should I believe that there were anyone in the Republican Party at this point actually believes in fiscal restraint? Yeah, it's tough because, again, once you once you lose the moral high ground on any issue, it's hard to get it back. But you can get it back. And I think if you're going to start doing it now, you could still make the case. You could still make the case that if spending becomes an issue, that they are going to spend more than we do. And, and, and they will. We might have a little bit more disciplined spending than the Democrats. Um, it's that, that that's a, it's a tough sell. And really, I mean, the truth of the matter is that we like spending as much as they do. We just want to spend it on other things. We want to spend it on defense. They want to spend it on wealth transfer payments. That's what it comes down to. Um, I, I still, the Republicans could be making a case that, um, that deficits are not going to go away. Um, and that the best kind of deficits are deficits that allow people to keep their own money. So tax uh, reductions, because that's the most efficient allocation of resources. The next best type of debt is that that goes to infrastructure, because at least there's a return on that investment. Uh, and the worst kind of debt is that incurred on wealth transfer payments, because that's the most inefficient allocation of resources. And again, once you start saying that, you put half of the audience to sleep. It's going to be difficult. And the point you just made, Sarah, is why we haven't talked about it recently, because it's hard. I love the bumper sticker, though, for 2024. Republicans, we probably might spend less than the other guys. <laughs> <laughs> Needs a little work. <laughs> and, and even that. Well, let me ask about public perceptions, because, you know, it, it would be one thing if I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly content to blame Republicans and I do blame Republicans. I think they, they bear a lot of uh, a, a lot of the, the blame for why we're in this position right now. But it's it's not as if you've got a public outcry calling for less spending and, and more restraint and addressing debt and deficit issues, at least at this point. And, and I wonder, um, Anna, taking even a, a further step back, a sort of big picture look, should we think this is possible at all? I mean, we're, we're $28 trillion in, in debt right now, running you know, deficits we've never seen before, and no real sense. I mean, what strikes me is the absence of the discussion of debt as we pile on trillion after trillion after trillion. How do, how do Republicans make people care about this anymore when we've been hearing about the coming debt crisis for years? We're not yet there. And this all seems to be working out. The economy's doing well. Stock market's up. Bank accounts are good. 401ks are fat. Why can't we keep continuing to do this? Yeah, I... I, I... I remember a conversation I had walking through one of the tunnels in Congress when I was a, a new member of Congress, and I was walking with one of the old bulls, the guy that's been there for 30 years. He's on appropriations committee, and he's been there through everything. And we're, he heard about me, and we you know, knew a little bit about my background. He goes, oh, I, just lo I love you, deficit hawks. I love you, budget hawks. You guys are great. I was there you know, when you, when you all came in with Reagan, uh, and then you left. And I was there when you came back in with Newt, uh, and then you left. And you're here now. And you're going to be gone soon, and I'm still going to be here, and we're going to spend the money. And that's sort of, that was a Republican, by the way. So um, how, do, how do you make the case? Um, something I'm, I'm working on in my own head, and I haven't figured out a way to sell it yet because it's, too, it's, it's, it's just too complicated. I, got, I, I did an interview with um, some friends of mine. I was in the South Carolina Senate for uh, two years. And uh, some buddies of mine have got a podcast. So I went down and chatted with them. And they asked me, why Washington, was Washington government uh, differing than governing in Columbia, South Carolina? And I said it was. And they said, why do you think that is? And the first thing that came into my head was because we have a balanced budget amendment in South Carolina. Um, and it forces people to work together um, because you have to pass a budget. So there, has, there is a forced um, bipartisanship of sorts, even though in South Carolina we have... Um, we have a veto-proof majority in the House and a huge, maybe veto-proof majority in the Senate. I haven't done the math recently. Um, but when, when you're forced to make difficult decisions, it, 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 it makes people come together. If you have a printing press uh, and you're in charge, you can do whatever you want to do and you don't care what I think. And if I have a printing press when I'm in charge, I can do whatever I want to and don't care about what you think. So there is an argument, again, it's, it's too convoluted right now, that if you want to see Washington change um, and you want to see bipartisanship again and people working together, make them make tough decisions because right now they don't have to do that. And a balanced budget that would actually accomplish that. 
So can I let me follow up on on the internal congressional dynamics there. You were an active and enthusiastic uh, member of the House Freedom Caucus for years, um, made arguments. The Freedom Caucus made arguments during the Obama years um, and, you know, took, I think, tough stands. I admired many of the stands that you all took, even if I didn't necessarily agree with all of the tactics uh, 100 percent of the time. I was with you in spirit. Um, we've seen a dramatic change in the Freedom Caucus uh, these days. Um, I remember when we covered the, the president's President Trump's first speech to Congress and uh, Mark Meadows later chief of staff at the White House, um, gave it an A++++. The president had spoken for 90 minutes and didn't mention debt or deficits. I mean, that was sort of the animating issue of the Freedom Caucus, and it didn't seem to matter. And as the the Trump years went on, the Freedom Caucus, it seems to me, became more of an enforcer of sort of not only party loyalty, but Trump loyalty, and much, much less focused on the kinds of issues we're talking about with respect to fiscal restraint and whatnot. Uh, one, is my perception of that correct? And two, how, how much of that uh, can I blame you for? Because they were doing what you were asking them to do. Um, the, uh, the Trump enforcer stuff, is that's easy to explain. Um, because, uh, and I told the president this, because I've been, the, you know, as a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, I think I was uh, in Congress for two years. I think we started it in 14, although I, I'm losing track of history. I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, and when I got over to the White House, even when I was, before I was chief and I was the Office of Management Budget, the president's like, you know, tell me about these guys. And I'm like, these guys are going to be your very best supporters. And he's like, why? I'm, they're very conservative. And he knew he wasn't that conservative. And I said, Mr. President, at the core, um, they are your voters because at the core, the Freedom Caucus is anti-establishment. That, that's what it is. It's, it's against Washington for the, the way Washington has been. It took the form of a conservative uh, group, an ultra-conservative group on some things, but the spirit of it was, was, was anti-establishment. So there was, they had kindred spirits with, with Donald Trump. Um, that being said, you are absolutely right when you say that the, the group changed. People forget um, when we started the group, um, the working title, and I am not making this up. We did not have a name for the group. Uh, just, uh, uh, J- Justin Amash had taken the Liberty Caucus, which we all kind of liked. Um, uh, and we didn't have a name for ourselves. So the working title was the Reasonable Nut Job Caucus. <laughs> we actually, I wrote the bylaws uh, for the group um, as one of the founders. And the bylaws were essentially, um, we had a test, okay? It was a working test. And there's a Bore folks, but I guess if they're listening to this podcast, they're true Washington insiders. The, 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 the litmus test was this. You had to be able to vote against a rule on the House floor, and you had to be able to vote for a short-term continuing resolution spending bill. Because those were the two extremes. Voting against a rule was the most anti-leadership vote you could take. It was outright mutiny. And voting for a short-term CR was one of the most uh, pro-leadership type of votes that you could take. And it was uh, had been something that caused a great deal of division within the party the first the whole time I was there was voting for short-term CRs. But we needed people to be able to vote both ways. And for that reason, um, there were a lot of folks who were not invited in. Steve King was not invited in when I was there. Louis Gohmert was not invited in when I was there because we knew they could vote against rule. They, we didn't think they could ever vote for a CR. They were not, they were not capable, they were capable of being nut jobs, but not capable of being reasonable. And we were looking for people for whom they could do both. And what I think happened um, was that after Trump got elected and the Freedom Caucus sort of moved to front and center on Fox News, is that they realized that there's a lot more energy behind being nut jobs than there is being reasonable. Um, and the, the Freedom Caucus went hardcore over um and i I think moved away from from some of our founding principles can i let me can i go one one question deeper on this um because this is this is this you're touching on a lot of things that i've occupied way too much uh of of my thinking over the past several years so i'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that washington needed a major disruption it's probably one of the reasons that i was sympathetic to a lot of the things that the freedom caucus stood for to me it sounds like you're saying they're in in some ways a, a hinge point, and either I've just misunderstood 
what was the animating um, presence of of the anti-establishment crowd, or I just misunderstood the 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 impulse toward fiscal restraint. But it seems to me you go back to 2010 and you've got the Tea Party, you've got the the Republicans uh, coming into Congress, you and your colleagues, who are bringing this this spirit of of actual restraint. There's an ideological component to the disruption. Yes. Donald Trump comes in and there's not really at all an ideological component to disruption. In fact, in many respects, it was a non-ideological disruption. Did, did that, am I reading that right? And if that's the case, did the Freedom Caucus, was I wrong to have understood them as being ideological in the first place? And it really was just all about blowing stuff up? No, uh, it was ideological. It absolutely was. Um, uh, Keep in mind, the reason the Freedom Caucus came into existence was because we felt, and I believe rightly so, that the Republican Study Committee had been co-opted by leadership. There were two successive elections. One, I think, Steve um, Scalise, and all these people are my friends. I'm not, I'm not saying they're bad people, but Steve Scalise um, was able to, uh, to co-opt leadership with John Boehner and Eric Cantor to beat um, Tom Graves um, in an election for the Republican Study Committee chairmanship in 2012. And then, uh, oh, what's his name? Bill Flores from Texas was able to do the same thing to me in 2014. And that's when the conservatives looked around and said, we need our own place. So it was both. It was the ideology was we, we thought that the there was not a conservative caucus, that if you were co-opted by by leadership, you you could not fill your role. Uh, in the in the Republican Study Committee, so there was certainly that ideology, and there was the anti-establishment part of it because we were pissed at the way that leadership was was treating our group. Did the change? Did that change when Trump came into office? Probably, but didn't the Republican Party? I mean, wasn't the, has the Republican Party been a lot less ideological the last four years? You're seeing that today. You're correct in that Trump does, does not have a, 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 a political ideology the same way that Paul Ryan or you or I do. Um, and it's certainly if he does, it's not it's not conservative. Um, that being said, he was able to to accomplish a lot of conservative things. Spending just happened not to be one of them. But again, the Republican House and the Republican Senate were 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 blithe to go along with him on the road to spending more money as long as they got their more money for defense. They were more than happy to pay their more money for uh, for the, the social spending and so forth. Um, so the answer to your question is yes on both fronts. Um, it was it was ideological and it was anti-establishment. It became less ideological because that's where our party went as well. John Boehner's new book on the House has come out with some excerpts. I want to read you a portion. He's talking about the class of congressmen that are sworn in in January of 2011. That's you. And he says, you could be a total moron and get elected just by having an R next to your name. And that year, by the way, we did pick up a fair number in that category. Uh, some of them, they were just thinking of how to fundraise off of outrage or how they could get on Hannity that night. Ronald Reagan used to say something to the effect that if I get 80 or 90 percent of what I want, that's a win. These guys wanted 100 percent every time. In fact, I don't think they would set that would satisfy them because they didn't really want legislative victories. They wanted wedge issues and conspiracies and crusades to them. My talk of trying to get anything done made me a sellout, a dupe of the Democrats and a traitor. Some of them had me in their sights from day one. So uh, I had a really fun time going back through the history of Mick Mulvaney and John Boehner from 2011 <laughs> on uh, you vote against him. Of course, it was like a, I was like, oh, yeah, that was oh, hmm. Uh, you vote against him for speaker when you thought you had the votes. Some people reneged. Then in 2015, they never had the votes. You put out this really scathing statement, actually, of why you voted for him for speaker that year. But saying the whole time, you know, he's not your guy. Um, and then you are credited as being one of, I guess it was four of you, five of you, who went to visit with Boehner the day before he resigned early and stepped down. And you said um, you no longer believed he was the leader of the caucus. Um, he had ceased to be a leader. That was your quote. This is a principles disagreement, not personal. Was John Boehner right? Were you wrong in what your criticisms of him were? You were just talking about Donald Trump not being really someone of principle, being more a vehicle. John Boehner, at least according to him, 
he was trying to get stuff done, conservative stuff, stuff that, you know, you maybe didn't agree with 100%, but was at least part of what you wanted. The result of the movement you created led to this moment and all the things we've talked about. So, yeah, where do you where do you think of your John Boehner days now? <laughs> I could talk about John for hours, even though he and I did not spend nearly as much time together as people might think or I had wished. Um, John Boehner and I have never played golf together. Um, and I've always told people, I said, I, I just don't understand why John had such a combative relationship with our group. I'm, I'm a, I'm a somewhat vulgar golfing, drinking Irish Catholic. <laughs> I used to pass John Boehner on the way to mass most mornings when I was in Washington, DC, he was going to breakfast. I was going to church. I'd give him a hard time about not popping his head in. He'd laugh and we go on. One of my favorite stories about John is that um, he called me uh, one time and the, my phone rings and it's, you know, it says the speaker on it. So I go over, to, I say, yes, Mr. Speaker, goes, come over here. I want to talk to you right now. So, okay. So I walk over and he's sitting in his office. He's just there by himself. He's got his legs crossed. He's reading the newspaper, smoking a cigarette. He goes, just wanted you to know that I don't like you very much. And he said it with a smile on his face. And I sort of smiled. I said, well, thanks, Mr. John. I appreciate that. Um, uh, why is that? He goes, you remind me way too much of me. Now get the F out of my office. Okay? <laughs> and I left. So that was the kind of relationship we had. And I think John saw, you know, John made his name for himself being a disruptor, being anti-establishment. I mean, that's, that's, that's how he was what he was. Um, I, I'll answer your question like this. Uh, John, I think, made a, one critical mistake that he never recovered from, which is that he did not understand what happened um, in 2010. Um, he thought it was an ordinary election. He thought that the Republicans had put out some good stuff in the, in the, uh, and that they had done a good job of sticking together. And that, that because they had unified and because they had a really good policy paper called the, the Pledge to America, which is 87 pages and a piece of crap, um, that that is what got everybody elected which is exactly not what got everybody elected. The Tea Party was entirely different. John misunderstood that and came to Washington with the same attitude as, as incoming speakers had since the 1920s and failed to adapt to the new environment. And the one story I tell is that he called all 87 us uh, to the uh, second floor of the, uh, to the Capitol Hill Club right after we got there, introduced himself. We're all facing him. He's at the end of the room. And um, he gives a little introduction. And then somebody, I don't remember who it was, because we didn't know each other at the time, says, Mr. Speaker, you know, we, um, we represent roughly a third of the, uh, of the Republican uh, House caucus right now. And given the historic events of what just happened and the talent in this room, um, we'd, we'd really like you to consider a proportional representation on the A committees, because we, we don't want to wait to get stuff done. We don't want to be here for 30 years. That's not what we want to do. We want representation on ways and means and financial services right now. And he took a drag on the cigarette and laughed and said, well, that's never going to effing happen. What's your next effing question? Okay. And he lost more than half of the group that day. Now, granted, that's just John's personality. And I got it because, again, I, he and I are very similar types of people. Um, but he lost a group of people on that day and never got them back and never got anybody to buy into his system. I think he was a man out of time. He would have been a great speaker in 1968, um, but was not a good speaker in 2010. Was the job harder in 2010? Absolutely. Did Paul Ryan learn that the, the hard way? Absolutely. Um, but you, you cannot, you could not go into, uh, into the Tea Party movement not realizing that it was something different. And if the leadership doesn't change, it will be, uh, it will be replaced. But at the same time, did the Tea Party fail to accomplish its goals and turn into what it has become today, the, the successor to the Tea Party that's there today, what Steve and you were talking about with the House Freedom Caucus, because it also failed to grasp that it was in the House of Representatives, which was a body with certain ways of getting things done and rules and that you couldn't just go to Hannity every night or Rush or Mark Levin. Um, and think that that was somehow going to accomplish things. We had all sorts of opportunities that we could have taken um, as a party that we didn't, because I, I think we had we had unsound leadership. And gr now, granted, keep in mind, we, we're looking at this uh, in hindsight. One of the things we've not talked about is who was, who was in, uh, president at the time. It would have been very difficult to get anything done um, with Barack Obama because he was he was 
simply disinterested in engaging at all on, on bipartisanship. Uh, but go back and give the one example that we could have maybe looked at um, uh, positively, which was the uh, Simpson-Bowles plan. Could have been the, 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 a, a foundational work um, that we could have put the energy behind the Tea Party uh, behind um, under different circumstances, different leadership. Um, and we did not do that. And I think that was a lost opportunity. I lost votes in my, I lost a vote. John McCain refused to vote for me for the Office of Management Budget in my Senate confirmation because I voted for every Simpson-Bowles amendment to the uh, to the appropriations bills, including the Defense Department. And for that, he called me a, um, a chucklehead or something like that and uh, would re- refuse to vote for me uh, for OMB director. All right, last point on this. You mentioned that it would have been exceptionally hard to get anything done with Barack Obama. I think that is probably true regardless. But did the Freedom Caucus, are they somewhat responsible for that as well with the birth certificate nonsense and really different than what I think we had seen during the Clinton years or the Carter years, go back, um, a loyal opposition into really going on television, going to the media every day and saying that Barack Obama was morally corrupt, evil, un-American, an unworthy president. Yeah, that wasn't the Freedom Caucus in 2014. Again, that was the reasonable nut job caucus. It was, I was on TV a lot. Jim Jordan was on. Yeah, we, we took them to task on some of the oversight issues. Uh, Benghazi comes to mind, especially. But we were heavily focused on policy, heavily focused on spending. Um, and I do, I never remember, I never remember talking about the birth certificate a single time, um, in my days in Congress. I don't believe that, uh, that Jim Jordan did at that time as it, as it morphed into something else after Donald Trump became president. I think, I think, uh, Steve made that case quite persuasively that it has, but in those early days, no, I do not think the difficulty was that we were focused on these fringe issues. I think the difficulty was we had a dysfunctional party. And again, it would have been very difficult to be functional if we were perfect, because again, we, for a period of time there, we didn't even have the Senate or the White House. So yeah, it would have been difficult, um, but we could have done much better than we did. Imagine what it would have been like if we had thrown our weight behind Simpson Bowles. Was that ever a real consideration? Was that, was that a discussion? No, Paul Ryan was against the tax increases. Jumping, jumping ahead a bit. Um, you were chief of staff in the Trump White House. I imagine that p- people who follow politics even casually can't quite comprehend what that meant to your life on a day-to-day basis. What, what, what was a typical day? It's sort of a cliche question, and I'm sure the answer is there was no typical day. But what was that like? Trying to, trying to make that all work, working with a guy who, who you know, by his own definition, by the, 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 in the terms of his most enthusiastic supporters governed in an ad hoc fashion? Um, there's no simple answer to that. Um, was there a typical day? Yes. In terms of the schedule, no, in terms of the subject matter. I mean, I got to the office the same time every day, pretty much left the same time every day. We worked 14, 16 hour days most of the time. Um, I actually had to set it up in two shifts because the president only slept about four hours a night. And I, I, I don't, I don't work after nine o'clock at night. I can't, I just, I'm not wired like that. So I'd get to the office about six 30 and I'd work till about eight. Um, and then the beat, the, the, the afternoon team, which came in about 10 would work till 11 o'clock. Um, so we had to have constant, uh, sort of dealing with things in shifts, but the way I describe it to people is that, and it was Sarah Huckabee Sanders who explained this to me when, after she left, I talked to her about, I guess, four or five months after she left. I, I said, how you doing? She goes, well, I'm finally sleeping through the night. And I'm like, really? She goes, yeah. She goes, Mick, you don't realize how addicted you get. Your body gets addicted to the adrenaline. Everything you're doing every single day is important uh, at, a, at a global scale. Everything you're doing is liable to be on the front page of the Washington Post or the lead story on CNN. It's just everything, every single thing. And of course, all of your uh, all of your mistakes when you are in a Republican administration um, will be magnified. There's no question. I, I, I know I was half joking early on. It's much easier to be a Democrat. You can screw things up in this town and a Democrat and the media will cover for you almost all of the time. 
Um, as I've often said, if the mainstream media did not have a double standard, they would not have any standards at all. Um, and we knew it, and that was fine. It's, it's a miracle, by the way, that Republicans ever win any elections given the media coverage. I think my friend Frank Luntz said that his analysis was that the media coverage of Donald Trump over the course of his four years was 94% negative. Um, and we were dealing with that every single day. Now, uh, that also, it did help build a rapport because you knew it was sort of you against the world. It was the, it was the West Wing against the world, and that, that did help. And for a period of time, it was one of the best places I've ever worked up until uh, the first impeachment was really rough on the West Wing, and we can talk about that another time, um, and really divisive in the West Wing. But from January through to about August, um, we had a blast, thought we were doing some really, really good work, thought the president was doing some excellent stuff. Um, we had some, some, some legislative wins, um, and it was, uh, it was a fun place to work. Uh, would I do it again? No, it's not the type of thing you go back and do. Someone asked me one time, Steve, they, uh, I was actually with the president with a group of people in the, in the, in the West, in, in the Oval Office. We're just sitting around shooting the breeze like we did a lot of times. And he's, the president goes, Mick, Mick, why don't you tell these people what you do? And I just sort of pulled my hair back. And when I still had some, I said, Mr. President, um, I do all the, can I curse in this, in this podcast? Yeah. I, I, I do all the shit you don't want to do. And I, I, I tell you all the shit that nobody else wants to tell you. <laughs> That's the reason that you know, chiefs of staff don't live very, if you do it right, you can't stay very long because that is a hard place to, to be. I remember one morning he used to come down about 11. He gets up about five in the morning, uh, but he didn't come down to the office till about 11 every single day. Um, he'd read all the newspapers, watch all the morning shows, then come down. And I'm waiting in Dan Scavino's office, and one of the lawyers comes in and says, is the president down yet? I said, no, he's not. He goes, well, i got to have five minutes of his time. And, and, you know, that was my job, you know, sort of determining what, what deserved to get in and what didn't. And it, so what happened? He said, we just had a great case and a great decision at the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's a huge win for us. It was a huge win for us. I remember the case. I said, that's absolutely the type of thing that we need to get in this. So, yeah, when, as soon as he comes down, you can have 10 minutes came down, goes through the, 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 the decision, yay team, everybody's happy. No problems. The same day, the same day, that afternoon, 6.30 or so, the same lawyer calls me on the phone and says, hey, um, are you going to see the president this afternoon? And I sort of paused and I said, you know I'm going to see the president this afternoon. I see the president every afternoon. Why the hell are you calling me from upstairs instead of coming down to see me? Oh, uh, we just got a really bad decision in the 11th circuit. And I was hoping you could tell the president cause I'm leaving to go to the airport <laughs> for the conference. So, okay. And that's, that's what I did. Um, and, uh, but again, I, I don't regret it, uh, at all. Uh, I, I, I do regret, not regret. I'm, I was sad to see that the systems that we had put in place to make sure that the president was surrounded by good information. Uh, seemed to fail after I left. Um, I, I don't think you get the results that you got on the January 6th riots if the president is getting good information. The president was always, we always had fringe people in, 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 the, uh, in the Oval Office. You just did. I think many administrations do. When you like to talk to large crowds like President Trump does, and Reagan was the same way, by the way, you're going to get Peter, like Peter Navarro in there. Okay? You're going to get people who are, have bad information talking to the president. That wasn't going to stop, by the way. The key was to balance it with other people in there who actually knew what the hell they were talking about, who can provide him with good information so that he could take the good, the bad, filter through it. And ultimately, I was very pleased with the decisions that he made when I was chief of staff. It is apparent to me that broke down after I left and that only the crazy people were advising him. And I think that's the only way you get to how he handled uh, the post-election up to and including the riot uh, on, on the 6th, was that the only people left in the building who were talking to him were people who were telling him stuff that was not right. Anybody who told him that that Mike Pence had the ability to unilaterally set aside that election uh, did a great disservice to the country. And why that person or those people were allowed in there on a regular basis to convince the president um, is one of the things I think history needs to find out. When you look back at your time and you talked about y'all had some accomplishments, you probably have some day-to-day -day regrets, but overall, I think you believed what I believed as well. I think, I know John Kelly did, uh, that we want good people in government, regardless of the flaws of the leader. Uh, we, we don't want him to be surrounded by crazy people, like you said, uh, around January 6th. 
But knowing what you know now, knowing what came after, you resigned after January 6th from your uh, position. Do you regret going in at all? Do you think that perhaps it was a disservice to the country to, um, in some ways, shield the American voter from what a Donald Trump presidency would have looked like if he had been left to his own devices and and had the presidency that I think he wanted in some ways? Yeah. Uh, first of all, no regrets. Zero. Not, not a single one. Um, and I have no uh, second thoughts at all about joining the administration. I disagree with John Kelly on the role of the chief of staff. John Kelly really did see himself as, as, as to be there as a shield between Donald Trump and, and, and the country. He was protecting the country against Donald Trump. That's absolutely absurd. Uh, John Kelly wasn't elected by jack squad people. No, not a single person ever voted for John Kelly for anything. Tens of millions of people voted for Donald Trump. He was the elected president of the United States. The job of the chief of staff is not to protect the nation against their elected leaders. It's to try to figure out a way to make that elected person as successful as they possibly can. Um, and of course, you know, everybody says, oh, what if it's illegal? No, if it's illegal, if it's immoral, there's not even a conversation about that. That, that never even came up. Never, he never asked me to do a single illegal or immoral thing ever. I had a fascinating conversation last night about the withholding money for Ukraine, a hundred percent legal. Uh, he never asked us anything that even approached uh, what John Kelly sort of suggests uh, the president was asking. So I disagree wholeheartedly with John on that. Our job as the staff was to make the president successful. And I thought that we did that. I thought that the staff failed to do that after we left. And I do not think the president was successful through the COVID uh, crisis. I obviously wasn't successful on the election, was dismally uh, unsuccessful on the lawsuits related to the election. I had a fascinating conversation with a guy who, um, who um, uh, worked for the Bush campaign in 2000. And he said, in 2000, we knew we were going to have a problem in Florida. Uh, I was down there six months before the election. Uh, we had lawsuits all during the period run up to the election. We had lawsuits on the day of the elections. We had lawsuits after the elections. I didn't get a call from the Trump campaign. This is this guy talking now until three days after the election. So it was, it was poorly executed, poorly prepared. The president was not successful um, in the latter half of 2020 uh, because I think a large part of the staff. So, so do you regret leaving? Well, no, I mean, he asked me to leave. I mean, you know, it was never intended to, the reason I was acting <clears throat> was that it was never intended to be a full-time position in the first place. I actually asked for, um, I got the job at the chief of staff's office um, when I asked for the envoy to Northern Ireland. Um, I had just finished my, uh, my year as the acting director of the CFPB. I had set up the office of management budget so that it could run with me gone three or four days a week. And now here I am with one job again. And I was bored. And I went into his office Friday afternoon and said, there's this other gig in Northern Ireland and I'm done at CFPB. I could do this, you know, part-time. It hasn't been filled yet. I'd really like to do it. And he's like, no, no, no. I love what you did at CFPB. You turn that place around. This place is struggling. Kelly destroyed the place. The morale here is awful. You come in six months, six months, turn it around six months acting, and then you could do the Northern Ireland Irish thing. That turned into a year. Um, and at the end of 2019, um, I was ready to go. I knew he was ready to go. And that was more important than I would have stayed as long as he wanted me to stay. But I couldn't leave. And he knew he didn't want me to leave in the middle of impeachment. Um, so we waited till after the impeachment was over. And he actually, I encouraged him to hire Mark, um, Mark Meadows because Mark was a friend of mine. Um, and then I got the job I wanted. So no, I have, I have no regrets about, about leaving the chief's position. I have no regrets about retiring, uh, resigning in the office on the 6th. I, I think it was the only thing I could do um, to, 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 to voice my, my, my objections. I, I, I do not think the president um, uh, was successful on that day. I think he failed on that day to, to be presidential. And I went home and talked to my kids and they said, why are you still working for him? And I said, that's a really good question. But we were in a worldwide pandemic. The president we needed a leader of the country in his fullest capacity, his most successful. You don't regret leaving and handing off power to someone who turned out to not be nearly as successful as you put it. Um, didn't you owe it to us to stay then? Well, first of all, it's not my job to keep, right? It's his. To convince him? 
Oh, no, 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 um, no, you don't convince the president. Once the president's made up his mind, you there's, you could always tell we had, we, I had what used to be called the trump meter um, And because the president thinks out loud, right? He, he just does. A lot of people do. Um, and he used to say, I want to do X. Okay. And then one of the things I was good at was sort of innately, the president and I liked each other. We still do. Uh, we play golf together. I, I think I understand if he's similar to other men that I've worked with and for over my career. And I'd go back to the office and say, okay, the president just said X. And people look at me and go, well, where is that on the trump meter And I'm like, that's about a 35 on the trump meter So we're going to wait and see if it's still X again tomorrow. And there was sometimes it was 98 on the trump meter and we knew it wasn't going to change. And when it came time to make the decision to replace me with Mark Meadows, he was at 100 on the trump meter And I was, I was fine with that. So no, you don't, get, you don't then get the chance to say, oh, Mr. President, I'm not leaving because we're in the middle of a pandemic and you can't, you can't do this. Um, that that's not that doesn't enter into the equation uh, in, in the relationship between a president and the chief of staff. You go, thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. I hope to be able to help you in another fashion. I will do everything I can to help Mark Meadows. And by the way, and this story never got written. Um, Meadows and I were supposed to overlap about two weeks. I told Mark that I'd stay till the end of March, um, and that he'd officially start April first. That he was good with that. And we were going to overlap again because Mark and I, founding Freedom Caucus, our districts touch each other in the Carolinas. We are, we travel together. We are friends, and uh, it, this was a smooth transition, um, or was going to be, until I got exposed to COVID and then had to lock down for two weeks. And then he and I had two days together, and then he got exposed to COVID, and we had to he had locked down for two weeks. So we really only had two or three days of that overlap, which was unfortunate. On January 6th and the, the post-election period, you, you famously wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal in which you suggested the president was likely to just fold when it was clear that he hadn't won the election. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, question on that is, how much of that was you trying to encourage the president to behave that way because he responds to messages through the media, probably better than he does uh, other kinds of admonitions. And how much of it was your belief that he actually was going to just graciously walk away and, and give up the game? Yeah, that is a really great question. And no one's ever asked me that. Uh, and the answer is both. Uh, the answer is both. As I believed it, would not have put it in print and certainly not in the Wall Street Journal um, uh, if I didn't believe it. So I believed everything that I wrote and it was based upon the experiences that I had with him. We could talk about that a little bit. But at the same time, I was I was worried that based upon what had happened on the sixth, is that the the flow of information into the West Wing was clearly broken. Um, there was no one telling the president anything other than "You won the election." I can't believe they stole this from you. We have to stop the steal. Um, and that I was looking for a, another way to communicate with the president. And that was one of the ways to do it. By the way, the, the traditional places that you would do that would be go on Lou Dobbs or, Joe, or or Hannity. You couldn't do because they were contributing to the stop the steal narrative, right? So it was both. Um, and the, and I know you don't get to, history doesn't work like this. But if you take January sixth out of the equation, and you can't do it, but if you were to do it, wave a magic wand. And the Trump presidency from the election day up until the day he left Washington, but for January 6th, was exactly as I said it would be in that article, was that he would fight and fight and fight and really be probably pissy and not go to the inauguration and not hand over the keys to the building, but he would leave. Um, and that's exactly what happened, but for the 6th. The 6th, there's no defense for January 6th, and I was flat out wrong in, in, in saying that it would never come to that. By the way, the reason I thought it would never come to that is I'd seen him under different circumstances where he ultimately was very presidential. There were circumstances where I actually encouraged him to, to do things that were a little more spectacular, a little bit more um, PR. And he'd look at me and go, Mick, 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 I'm the president of the United States. I'm not getting into that petty shit, Okay. And instead of my idea, he would go on and uh, it was actually during the government shutdown and did one of his rare Oval Office addresses. So, yeah, he was he was always combative and sometimes difficult, but never irrational, never, ever, ever irrational, not the whole time I worked for him. Uh, and that's why that, that period of time between the election and January 6th was uh, turned out to be so different. Well, on January 6th, you uh, sent a tweet uh, uh, in the middle of all of the chaos, encouraging the president to to speak up, to 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 tell uh, his supporter, tell these folks to go home, is what you 
tweeted. We now know I've had conversations with people who uh, were privy to his thinking and and uh, with him that day. It's been widely reported that he didn't do this because he enjoyed it. He delighted in the fact that there was this attack taking place on the Capitol um, and saw it as a sign of strong support for him and and this conviction that he had been wronged. Why didn't he listen to to you or to anybody else? And what's your understanding of what the people around him in the White House were saying? Was anybody saying this? I mean, you said you had to deliver unpleasant messages to the president and encourage him to do things he didn't want to do. Did Mark Meadows do that? Or was he uh, exacerbating the problems by not doing that and encouraging the president? Yeah, I don't know. I've not talked to, uh, I've talked to maybe one person um, inside the building and it was not Mark. Uh, and I've heard, I've read the same press reports you have, the same stories about, you know, who was in the building and who was not in the building anymore. Where was the White House Counsel Office? Because as much as I, you know, I disagreed with Pat Cipollonian about a bunch of different things, he was a voice of reason, at least when I was there. Uh, unclear as to what whether or not he was even allowed in the room anymore. I don't know what Meadows was telling him. Um, uh, all I know is that um, is that he was it was too slow and it was too little and it was not presidential. Um, and I, I blame the staff as much as anybody. Um, if it is the, the office of the president of the United States is one of the most insular places in the whole world, if not the most. I mean, maybe the Vatican. Um, but it is a really, really tight, even if you are an extrovert and you're on TV all the time, the flow of information into that place is so tight and it's so hard to really understand what's happening that if you're not having people bring you information, you can make really, really, really bad decisions. By the way, that goes back, I mean, throughout history, I mean, you, you go back to the, I mean, there's been great articles written about the Bay of Pigs invasion and the group think that existed there. And, and it, it, there's Time and time and time again, Iran-Contra, bad things happening when the flow of information into the, into, the, into the Oval Office is bad. And if there's no one walking into that room and saying, Mr. President, um, we tried really hard, but you lost this election. We cannot prove that you won. Um, Mr. President, um, there's, a, there's a really, really dangerous situation right now happening on Capitol Hill, and we need to do something about it. Um, the president, whenever... Uh, I'm not going to go too much into the conversations I had with him in private. It was just the two of us, but there were a handful of, of, of occasions where I, it was just him and me. And I had to tell him stuff that he really, really, really didn't want to hear and that would require him to change course. Um, and he always took it seriously when I did. Um, he, he never, um, he, he could tell when things or just, Mick, what do you think? Oh, I don't like that, Mr. President. Ah, oh, you're wrong. Okay, that, that, that happened every single day. Uh, and you walk and say, Mr. President, uh, we have a problem. Uh, this happened today. This is bad. This is going to hurt us, and we need to fix it. And he would sit and listen. Now, he would often then call other people in and say, Mulvaney says X, what do you think? And he would get opinions from other people, and that's people from New York and his family and, uh, and, and, and Congress and everything. But he he rose to the occasion on the really serious stuff that didn't happen on January 6th. And I can only imagine that the president hadn't changed. It was the people around him who had. So uh, before we get to the really difficult questions, just just a couple quick questions about the, the future of the Republican Party, this this sort of post-Trump era that we're in. Obviously, we've seen lots of convulsions in uh, among House Republicans uh, after the impeachment, folks who voted to impeach the president. Would you have voted to impeach him? Um, not for incitement to riot. No, because I, 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 I was surprised the Democrats, um, the Democrats so narrowly tailored their impeachment because I, I don't think he incited the riot. I, I could I could vote against impeachment on that all day long. I've seen that speech a hundred times. He's given practically the same speech. Yes, he doesn't say, you know, go down the street and all that, but the same rhetoric, the same level of energy is one of his regular rallies, and it never resulted in violence. There's no way that he uh, incited riot. Um, do you vote to impeach somebody because you didn't think they were presidential? I don't think so. I think I took this, the, the step that was appropriate to me, which was to resign my position. I do not believe he uh, committed any impeachable offense in inciting a riot. Broadly, more broadly, do you think he competed? Do you think he, uh, uh, 
did he did he do anything at all that was impeachable uh, that day or in the days leading up to it? In your mind, I, I don't think so. I, I, again, not being presidential, I don't think is an impeachable offense. Using bad judgment, uh, I don't think is an impeachable offense. Um, thinking bad things about the vice president of the United States, goodness gracious, if, if that's an impeachable defense, I, I think most of them would be gone at some point or the other. <laughs> I don't mean to make light of that, but you, I, think, I think you see my point. Um, uh, so no, I, listen, I, I think the system, war, I believe in the system, I'm conservative. I believe in the system, okay? And what does that mean? It means that uh, he had his chance to prove he won the election. He, he went to the courts. That's the appropriate place to do it. He lost. Joe Biden won the election. He is validly the president of the United States. The Democrats had a chance to impeach him. They went through the process. They didn't impeach him. It was not an impeachable offense. I, I think the system worked. The question now is, how are the public going to react? Um, that's going to be the really interesting thing. Is it, is it did Donald Trump um, turn up? I, I resigned because, and I think the one line I had that I'm very proud of is, I didn't sign up for that. I, di- I didn't sign up for riots. I signed up to fight and kick and scream and, and, and work for the Republican agenda, and I would do anything to defend this president, and I did. I was the chairman of the of the Republic of Catholics for Trump on the campaign for crying out loud. So, I mean, you, could, uh, you, you can find people who worked as hard as I did for the president, but you're probably not going to find many that worked harder for this president over the course of the last four years. But I didn't sign up for riots, and I didn't sign up for a president who would not come out against violence. Um, uh, violence against the constitutional processes that we are all sworn to protect. But you so, don't think that that's impeachable? I don't. I, I, uh, of what? I mean, what did he? What did he do that was impeached? Again, the charge. The charge was incite to riot. Set aside what they actually did, but what you're describing is that a president of the United States, someone sworn to uphold the Constitution, was undermining the Constitution, is what you just said. So, no, no, I didn't stand. I didn't. I don't put words in my mouth. It's been a good interview. Don't don't do that. What I said was he didn't come out strongly enough against it. That is that is a that is a judgment call on my part. There are probably people who thought he was too strong against it. I do not think that is an impeachable defense. Do I think it is a failing? Yes. Do I think it merits uh, some type of disapproval and reprobation? Absolutely. Do I think it may, you know, should it disqualify you from from future office? Not in a legal sense, but in an in electoral sense. Should people think about how Donald Trump acted on January 6th if they're ever called upon to vote for him again? Yes, I think they should. Do I think he should address it? Yes, I think he should. Do I think he should try and, and rebuild some of the bridges that were destroyed on that day, specifically between him and Mike Pence? I think, yes, he probably should. Those are human things, though. That's not constitutional. You're asking a very serious question. Did the, did the pre- elected president of the United States com- commit an impeachable offense and should he be removed from the office? It's a very serious question. The answer has to be a very serious answer. And I think the answer is no. The of the the several Republicans in the House, 10 voted to impeach the president. And there was obviously a, a, quite a backlash um, in this whole discussion of a post-Trump Republican Party. You had movements to remove Liz Cheney from uh, from leadership. You've had uh, uh, fundraising groups um, spring up to uh, lead run against them to, to push for their defeat people like Tom Rice, uh, Anthony Gonzalez, Jamie Herrera Butler, Liz Cheney, and others. Is, can a Republican Party be successful <clears throat> if there are those kinds of purges? I mean, what you're describing sounds like a pretty difficult, um, naughty issue. You, you d- decided that it, you, you suggest that it wouldn't be, um, his conduct wasn't impeachable. But other people obviously had a different uh, view on that. Should they be sort of pushed from the party or pushed from leadership positions? Now, you know, I, I know that the, the division within the Republican Party always gets a lot of attention. Again, people love talking about um, fighting as opposed to working together. And that's certainly the case within the Republican Party. I will remind all of my friends, and I don't know if there's any Democrats listening to this, their party is just as divided as ours is. It's just that they won the last election. And the party that loses the last election tends to be the one that gets a little bit nastier about its infighting. But we're in a country of 300-odd million people. We only have two primary parties. Neither of them is going to be monolithic. There's always going to be divisions within them. Do we need to handle ours better? Yes. Tom Rice is a good friend of mine. Um, I, I, I can and will defend Tom Rice because he voted the best as he, as he thought that he could, and he can defend himself in his vote. In that sense, by the way, 
even though I may have voted differently than he does, I respect people who can defend their votes and don't just vote one way or the other because it helps them raise money or be, it will get them a, a shout out on a, on a television program. Um, I, I respect people who vote on principle. I disagree with Tom's vote, but he voted on principle. And I would always rather have those type of people representing me. And he's from my home state um, in Congress than people I agree with all of the time. Again, one of the reasons I like Lindsey Graham, he, 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 I can understand Lindsey. He and I disagree on things, but I don't think he's motivated by, by the wrong purposes. We will have to figure out a way to, to do better in our, our party. Primaries are fine as long as they are not so divisive that it allows the other party to then step into a vacuum that we've created on our own accord. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Steve reached out to your arch nemesis before this podcast to get some questions that he might want to pose to you. Steve? Did you write them in crayon so you could read them? <laughs> so I just sent a, a, a casual email to, to Trey Gowdy to ask if he had any interest in um, posing some questions to you. He sent four. I would say they're all very much worth asking, but in the interest of time, I will, uh, I will limit them to two. Well, do you want to give four and do the lightning round and see which ones are interesting? So that you can pick and choose which which ones you answer. The 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 fourth has a has a uh, uh, graphic. It says, "Are you really Major Arnold Todd from the Indiana Jones movie?" And it has a picture, which we will put in the show notes. But I won't make you I won't make you answer that. I'll go easy on you for that. First question is: If the Earth is really round, are we better off walking left or right to find your tee shot on the seventeenth tee box at Spartanburg Country Club? Uh, on any given day, it's probably left. Um, that being said, um, Gowdy does not want to open up discussions about golf because that would invite a discussion about how he had his handicap adjusted for failing to post scores, which is wow, sort of a felony in the golf world. But that's okay. We don't we don't have to talk about that. So it didn't officially happen until he wants to know where my tee shot is at 17. Well, I, I have to ask a, a follow-up. I got to depart from the script here. Who cheats golf more, Trey Gowdy or Donald Trump? You know, I get, I get asked that a lot um, about the president. And I'll tell you this story. This is true. And I, if there's golfers here, they'll understand what this means. Okay. Um, the, the, the president, uh, when the president is playing on a regular basis, he is a true single digit handicap. Okay. Um, and I was, I've never beaten him. And uh, I don't let people beat me at stuff, as Trey will uh, attest, okay? Uh, I was playing with him at Bedminster, which up until January 6th was going to host the 2022 PGA Championship. It is a real golf course. And I had him tied. We're playing the back tees. I had him tied through the 15th hole. We get up the 16th hole, and I'm ribbed and pretty good. And I'm like, today's the day, old man. I got you. I got you. I'm gonna, you are going down today, boss. This is the day I got you. He looked at me and goes, you don't have an effing chance. And he finished birdie, par, birdie. And I tell the story is that when you hit the ball 250 down the middle, you hit it to 15 feet and you make the putt, when are you going to cheat? Does the president take six footers sometimes for gimmies? Yes. Have presidents taken those putts forever? Absolutely, they have. Um, but um, the, the, uh, there is, there's, no, um, there's no reason to think that he, I, that, uh, he cheats uh, and that that's why he's so good at golf. Um, it's, uh, I never beat him. 
And uh, it's one of the things that will stick with me uh, now that my service is over. Okay, back to the lightning round. Final two questions. How long did it take you to adjust to being the least talented of the four South Carolina freshmen who came into office together in 2010? I'm still adjusting to it. <laughs> still adjusting to it. Um, you know, it's it's pretty stiff competition. I mean, when you're dealing with people, you know, you, Tim Scott was in that group. He's a great guy. Um, and uh, Jeff Duncan was in that group, and he's a great guy. And Tom Rice was that group. So that was my freshman class in 2010. And it's a very talented group of people. There's no question about that. Final question. What did you, you give up for? I'm lying about that. You know that. Gowdy was in the freshman class with us. <laughs> yeah. He, well, I, I, thought, I thought he was. I was a little surprised that you were uh, accepting his premise. <laughs> no, I'm pretending that I can't remember his name. So, Trip? Trip. Trip Gowdy. Um, final question. What did you give up for Lent and why start back? By the way, do you know, do you know what his name is? No. Harold. Harold Watson Gowdy no. III. Okay. No. Yes. So I met his son one time. I didn't realize this till I go, I'm playing golf with Trey and his son, a fabulous young man, comes and introduces himself as Watson Gowdy. And I looked at him, I'm like, hang on, wait a second. Are you Harold Watson Gowdy the fourth? He says, Yes, sir, I am. And I looked at Trey and I said, I know your dad. Your dad's name is Hal. What was your grandfather's name? He says, I, I think it was Harry or something like that. Are you telling me you've had four generations of, uh, of people in your family named Harold and not a single one of them used the name? And he's like, yeah. I said, then why do you keep using the damn thing? He had no answer for that. Um, so <laughs> what did I give up for Lent? Um, I gave up um, dessert. Uh, what he's trying to get at is that I used to give up alcohol um, for Lent. Um, just to prove to myself that I could, I stopped doing that because I got confirmed for the Office of Management Budget um, on just before Ash Wednesday of 2017, which is when my my uh, my observance is supposed to begin. And there was no way that I was going to be able to do that job without having a glass of wine at the end of the day. So I have given up giving up alcohol. Um, and uh, mostly what I do is I give up beating Trey in golf during Lent. <laughs> and with that... Thank you so much for joining us and for giving us so much of your time. Very generous of you. We really appreciate it. We hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks y'all very much. 